Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I will be speaking with the co-hosts of the endlessly fascinating global politics podcast, Afa Bunga Bunga. Afa Bunga Bunga, aka BungaCast, fuses current events, world history, and political theory in the attempt to make sense of the end of the end of history. The podcast is hosted by Alex Hochuli, George Hoare, and Philip Cunliffe, writers whose work has been featured on the New Books Network in the past. This episode is not a standard MBN episode. Rather than focus on any one particular book, we will instead discuss the BungaCast, academic podcasting, and the shifting grounds of global politics. Alex, George, and Philip, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, you know, before jumping into talking about your really wonderful podcast, I, you know, want to say just at the outset to listeners that I've been a listener to their podcast for about four or so years. I think it's been going for about five. Uh, and it's just really one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I would just like to know, you know, if, if you could all tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, Alex, why don't we start with you? Give a little a little background on our readers of who, who you are. Sure. Um, so I'm a, I, I mean, I work as a freelance uh, political analyst and writer. I'm based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I was born, but I was raised in Europe and uh, spent most of my uh, adult life uh, in the UK, actually, where I met George and Phil um, a long time ago now, um, over a decade ago, maybe maybe approaching 15 years. Um, and it's been some of the most difficult and trying 15 years. But despite <laughs> that, um, they're still good guys. So um, yeah, that's that's me. What about you, George? Yeah, so I'm I'm based in in London. I I stayed here, although Alex, uh, you know, went over to Sao Paulo. And um, yeah, independent researcher, I think, is the um, the way I'd probably describe myself. And um, yeah, written a, a previously on Antonio Gramsci, the um, Italian Marxist uh, philosopher. So that's a bit of my academic background. Studied um, in the UK um, and did a doctorate in political theory. So that's a bit of my background. And I'm, uh, so this is Phil, and I'm uh, an academic. At the moment, I'm at UCL, University College London, uh, though I live outside of London. And my area is international relations. And I've been, as Caleb mentioned before, I've been on the New Book Next New Books Network um, talking about some of the um, books that I've published in my um, capacity, I suppose, as an academic rather than as a podcaster. Um, but delighted to be here and uh, look forward to talking talking with you, Caleb, about the pod. First question that I'd like to ask, and Philip, uh, if you're comfortable, why don't you uh, you take it? You know, just how did you guys decide to start this podcast? And can you give a little bit of the background of, of the title? Uh, because I think I, I don't remember exactly how I found out about the podcast, but I'm pretty sure I clicked on it because I just was like, what is this title? What is Afa Bunga Bunga? I've never heard of this phrase or this term in my life. So, uh, you know, how did you guys come up with the title and how did you start podcasting and why call it this? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it began really like it kind of grew. The idea for a pod grew kind of organically out of conversations that we were having on WhatsApp. So just as kind of a group and, you know, kind of pissing and moaning and bitching about world politics and what have you, um, and uh, amusing ourselves, I suppose, if nobody else, you know, we thought that we might wish to inflict our 
our um, amusement <laughs> on on the wider world, and that the wider world perhaps deserved the benefit of hearing um, what was contained in the WhatsApp group. So, I mean, I think it. You know, I think I'm. I'm. Uh, I think I'm safe in saying, and I imagine George and Alex would agree with me, maybe not, but I mean, originally, at least our idea for the podcast was, this was, I mean, I should say this was, you know, about, like you say, about five years ago, but this was also just in the era when the kind of dirtbag left was really kind of breaking through. And we were quite taken with that. Um, So, you know, like the Red Scare Girls um, and some of the fringes of the left around um, the Jacobin kind of scene in the US, and we were quite taken... um, we were quite taken with the dirtbag left because it seemed to us to kind of break through all the kind of the suffocating, um, all the suffocating etiquette and uh, politesse, which seemed to have kind of developed around left-wing debates. And despite all the kind of the crudity and scatological humor and so on, we felt that it was kind of nonetheless um, clearing the way perhaps, you know, for more forthright discussions even if, um, even if perhaps less kind of arch and intellectual. So our initial conception was something kind of closer to a kind of a dirtbag left podcast. Um, but that evolved, um, you know, as we started getting going, um, that kind of evolved into something more, um, well, less dirtbag left, I suppose. When we more realized we weren't funny. Serious. Well, I guess when Alex and George realized they weren't funny, um, that we decided <laughs> that we had to be a bit more serious, and that was how we had to go with it. Um, and the actual, you know, the the decision that we had to make a podcast was when Alex was visit. I don't, I don't, I think he was visiting. Um, yeah. I think he'd already moved to Brazil by this point, but he was visiting, and he came down to visit me along with George in Canterbury. And uh, for any listener who wishes to make a pilgrimage to the place where Bungacast was found. It was a pub called The Dolphin in Canterbury, small market town just southeast of London. And I can even, sh- if you come here, I can even show you the table in The Dolphin pub where um, we decided to set up the podcast. As for the name, again, it kind of reflects its origins in that kind of um, more, I suppose, hipsterized left era, which is that it combined two things, which is um, the Bunga Bunga, which was, I think the phrase itself was coined by, supposedly by the late um, Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, but it was picked up by his friend, the Italian prime minister of the day in the in the 1990s, Silvio Berlusconi. And so after this uh, meeting at the pub, we made the decision to go ahead with uh, launching the pub, with launching the pod. And um, despite the kind of dirtbag origins, uh, it gradually became um, kind of more intellectually serious as um, this was partly an interaction with, not least an interaction with our listeners, because we felt our listeners were kind of pushing us in a more serious direction. And so we kind of adapted to um, to their demands and to how you know things developed in terms of our own thinking. As for the name, so that came from a kind of, again, I mean, it's kind of reflects its origins in kind of an arch um uh, left hipsterism, I suppose, um, but we still like it. So, I mean, um, which it combines uh, bunga bunga, which is a phrase kind of associated with um, the decadent flourishes of Silvio Berlusconi in the 1990s. He was the name he gave to the parties where he kind of had, um, uh, you know, his kind of decadent, glamorous, uh, glitzy parties where he, which symbolized something about his regime. Um, though apparently also, I mean, the actual phrase itself was taken originally from Silvio's uh, old friend, the Libyan dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. Um, so he took this phrase, Bunga Bunga, which symbolized the Silvio Berlusconi regime, which we thought was so important, as because it, in our mind at least, um, and this wasn't original to us, but we thought it was important, it prefigured so many of the politics that would come later. Not least Donald Trump himself. I mean, you could see so much of um, that kind of techno, um, sorry, that plutocratic populism um, that would come with Donald Trump was very much also embodied in um, Silvio Berlusconi's kind of political persona. Is um, the way in which he kind of um, shifted the Italian political landscape and Italian party system. So Bunga Bunga came from there, and it was combined with the idea of Auf Hebung, um, which is a uh, a term from German Hegelian philosophy, which is the idea of sublation, 
which is to say, um, I suppose, putting it simply is jumping over a stage or synthesizing um, synthesizing elements from a prior stage or a logically kind of a prior stage and um, boosting them up to a, to a higher level. So we were taken with the idea of combining those two things. Um, and uh, I mean, now we kind of refer to ourselves as just as BungaCast, but um, the or- that's the origin of the um, Alpha Bunga Bunga is the name of the pod. Alex or George, anything that you want to add uh, about the origin? Well, uh, no, not not in particular. I, it's just that we we never actually could decide who um, who had coined actually the brilliant name Alpha Bunga Bunga. But me and my infinite uh, humbleness and modesty will admit that it certainly wasn't me. Um, I think George is pointing to himself. It was George. Yeah, George. George can claim. I think George can claim it, um, which is fine. You know, like um, I think you know, it, we should identify people for um, for what they what they do and they achieve. So but, George, well, I, I, would, I would just add that the I mean, what Phil said about kind of becoming more serious. I mean, I joked about it also being a realization on our part that we weren't that funny, <laughs> and so we had to be more serious because you got to bring something to the party. But all, but in more seriousness, uh, it was also the fact, I think, of engaging immediately with the context of 2017, right? So post-Trump, post-Brexit, yeah. and that we started off already from the early days, from, I think, the first podcast. And certainly by the time we did a bit of a relaunch, like a little, a few episodes down the road, as the end of the end of history. So like, we had that kind of notion already pretty early on, and it was a reflection of the fact of the things like a, a kind of electoral breakthrough for a populist like Trump in that case didn't seem like a, merely a sort of one-off or a bit of a random event or the early days of something like maybe some earlier populist moments that you had in Europe in the early 2010s. But this felt very real and somehow marking a break in in contemporary history. And so for that reason also, there was a need for not – I mean, we never want to be academically – serious to put it in those terms we've always tried to set ourselves the task and the ambition of being politically serious um and so that was i think the thing that and in, drove us intellectually on intellectually serious but i mean not kind of caught up in debates that are purely academic or limited yeah. by academic concerns and i'd also say i mean in addition to that there was a populist breakthrough in you know the center of the world system in the u.s it was also very much the fact that george and i um were being in the midst of the Brexit process after the Brexit referendum in 2016, because the intensity um, and bitterness of that was out of all, um, you know, it was completely different to every single general election that um, any, you know, that certainly that I could remember or any kind of previous political episode in my adult life. So it was clear that there was a breakdown of the previous order of the status quo. So. Yeah. And, and I mean, actually, I, the experience was uh, similar, although very different for me in, in Brazil as well, where, you know, you had the kind of institutional coup against the Workers' Party in 2016, uh, an interim government, which was that, like hugely unpopular in 2017. And then, you know, shortly after the kind of the, the rise and then election of Bolsonaro. So it was also a moment which felt so very politically intense, you know, kind of walking out on the streets everywhere you look, people are kind of uh, very much engaged in and caught in the nexus of this kind of very intense politicization. And so that was also, I mean, on my part, following Brexit from afar, but also the 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 experience kind of in my day to day in Brazil as well. Yeah, I think it's I think it's, you know, safe to say that this environment, it didn't, and this context, it didn't just influence us, but also influenced our listeners as well. And, you know, this point's been made already, but I think it's just worth repeating the, the, I'm still quite struck by the number of uh, listeners who, who seem to have listened for quite a few years to the podcast and will reply critically to episode after episode with engagements about the the points that we're making, the points that guests are making. And that definitely drove us to kind of, you know, to be, uh, you know, as Alex was saying, to be politically serious and to, to kind of, to select people who we didn't always agree with, but to kind of put, allow them to put forward their views and and try and establish, um, you know, a, a critique of, of some of the, the things that were happening um, alongside the guests and, and the listeners as well. And there's, I mean, and just as, I mean, you know, and there's no need to labor the point, but I would also add, I think, I mean, 
I think it's important also we don't agree amongst ourselves. I mean, obviously, we share some kind of very, we share some important foundations which are, you know, fundamental and are the basis of being, in fact, being able to have a productive discussion. You obviously have to share some kind of um, common background, assumption, and what have you. But we also disagree amongst ourselves. And so we felt it would be useful to clarify, you know, in terms of clarifying our own thinking collectively and individually, to have those conversations by way of having guests, you know, having those conversations with guests as well, as well as um, interaction with our listeners. Yeah, I'm curious about how having a podcast and that sort of immediate response that you get from listeners, how that differs from writing how the podcast also maybe informs your your, your writing process. Uh, you know what, what was what was writing for for the three of you like before this podcast, uh, and what has that sort of experience been of just doing something that's a little bit uh, a little looser, a little uh, more fast paced uh, than just writing magazine articles, maybe or so. If, if yeah. I if I could give it a first cut, I mean, it's a really interesting question, um, and I've never thought about it. But just as you were saying it, it occurred to me that I mean, I think you know what is the the difference with the or the advantage of the pod is I think that people feel that it's it's more intimate, kind of listening to people's voices in your head, um, and so you know it's to do with the medium, I think. Because, you know, with email and, um, the, you know, I mean, I'm, I have an institutional email address. Anyone who reads anything that I write can very easily get in touch with me to, you know, kind of take issue with what I say. Um, so it's not as if we're, you know, any of us are kind of particularly remote or inaccessible to people if they want to get in touch. But nonetheless, on the whole, you know, our listeners engage with us um, much more, at least with me, than much more than, you know, with um, people who respond who I don't know responding to my writings. And I think that's to do with the medium. It's a more intimate medium. The conversational character of the medium makes it, I think, more kind of um, productive. Um, and maybe it's informal character as well. You know, it doesn't need, require the structure of an essay or a kind of an academic um, article or some kind of feuilleton or something like that, you know. So I think that it's a lot to do with the medium. That would be my take anyway. Yeah, I mean, on, on my part, I actually had pretty much stopped writing up until kind of 2016, um, which is when I moved to Brazil. Uh, and it was very much the kind of the absolute kind of, uh, uh, you know, boiling point that Brazil was reaching in the early days of 2016 that led me to to kind of back to... Uh, back to writing about politics, back to thinking a little bit more critically about politics after I had was working in marketing at the time and um, had finished my um, had finished my my kind of master's thesis already um, some years before. So for me, podcasting was actually a, a re-entry into writing rather than vice versa. Um, but it certainly was has been and was very incredibly productive in terms of being. Um, creating a routine effectively of sitting down every week and discussing politics in a very serious manner. And also as Phil mentioned with people with whom you share some basic principles and orientation to not just how to see the world, but what things are important in the world, you know, and, uh, and, and that allowed and provided a basis for, you know, just that process of being constantly thinking. So writing becomes a, a kind of a second nature rather than an exercise in which you have to, you know, twist your arm into it. Um, I so c- I, think I can't believe you've just described your writing as second nature, Alex. Like, well, you're thinking, you're just putting your, you're just putting what's in your head on paper rather than, you know, having to squeeze it out. As it were. Yeah. I think one thing it's particularly good for in the writing process, podcasting that is, is basically coming up with, with ideas because you're very often, you know, you haven't really, um, you've done all the research for, for a given episode or you've, you've read the book of um, the guest and then you're kind of discussing it. And particularly, uh, we often will have like a discussion just the three of us after we've interviewed a guest often on on a, a book that they've done. And just that process, I guess, of putting putting forward I, your your perspective in, in <clears throat> I was going to say in dialogue, in trialogue, if that's not too pretentious a way to put it, with the two other it co-hosts, it's, it might be. Um, but th- things like that, trialogue, the idea of trialogue just kind of comes because you're talking um, talking things through and you haven't, you know, when you're writing, it can be quite a, 
quite a structured process um but I, f- I definitely find talking talking things through and it's a way to catalyze and make decisions about you know the different things that are, that are occurring and it's very often the notes that i will make when we're recording are those are the things that uh, will then go and you know feed into writing more than the preparatory notes you guys mentioned earlier that after about you know 16 or 17 episodes you did a relaunch and a sort of a uh, refashioning into into this idea of the, the end of podcast about the end of the end of history. Uh, can you guys talk a little about the, the the concept of end of history? I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with it. And then this kind of idea of the end of end of history, which I think is something that I remember a few years ago, everyone was talking, you know, Francis Fukuyama was uh, many people's favorite punching bag. Uh, I feel like, you know, he's now kind of I don't want to say coming back into the fold a little bit in a way, no, because his idea was so impactful. But but what does the end of end of history mean, and what does it mean to think about uh, history as something that at one point ended but then is coming coming back? I mean, I guess in the most immediate and tangible sense, it was the you know growing up as we all did in the end of history. It meant being faced with a world in which politics was a pretty distant affair. And if you were into politics and had some sort of stake in politics, it meant that you were part of a, effectively of a, of a very distinct and small cast of people who were, you know, had connections to to politics. You know, you go, you finish university, you work in a think tank, or you, you know, you, you volunteer to, as an assistant to an MP or to a congressman and, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Um, or you're in the media, and which is also in itself had become very much a rarefied sphere. Um, this is, of course, you know, pre-social media, um, but at a point in which um, the mainstream media had become incredibly oligarchic and also the people that the social classes from which it drew from is also much more limited so that was the end of history in a sense of politics is very distant and i don't want to um you know and i think politics i would understand i think we would all understand the term in a much more all-embracing fashion than merely um questions of public administration or the state but it's kind of the ways in which we collectively try to determine our future and what society looks like and that was completely off the table, and um, all politics was effectively hidden away um, in, you know, closed behind closed doors, meeting rooms, um, in agencies which were just not open to public pressure. And I mean, that remains very much the case. But what makes the end of the end of history uh, remarkable, and why it feels like a distinct period, at least insofar as it's the collapse of the old rather than the birth of anything new is that the sheer degree of turbulence and the way that politics had been managed from above now no longer uh, is possible, right? So um, in the book, we talk a lot about post-politics, about this conception that um, whereby politics from the top, from the elite, becomes foreclosed. Uh, It becomes um, impervious to popular demands and almost tries to prevent politics from ever emerging. And that um, that now, as we can look around, has fallen apart under the weight of a lot of, you know, quote unquote, populist um, uprisings as they are, uh, which have challenged the notion that per- firstly, that politics is based on consensus, you know, that we're all in it together, that the basic ideas of how to run society are completely settled and that it's only a matter of technical implementation that matters. Um, and, you know, it's worth recalling that in that context of where only technical implementation matters, politics becomes incredibly focused on micromanagement of behavior and things like that. So, you know, politics is about getting people to eat healthily or recycle or whatever, because any of the big questions um, are beyond the purview of, of people as a whole. And elites themselves, who actually are in charge, um, have abandoned any notion of seeking to change society in any fundamental sense. So it's just about keeping things ticking over. Um, and we were very much struck with, you know, 2016 um, as the point at which we locate the end of the end of history as a moment which blew all that apart in the very nerve centers of global capitalism. Uh, George or Philip, I don't know if, if either of you have anything that you want to add to this idea, you know, what, what strikes the two of you about the end of end of history. Obviously, you know, you guys have been interviewed in the past on the New Books Network about the book. So, you know, I don't know if you want to maybe talk a little bit about how the idea for that book came about. 
maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would. Uh, well, um, I suppose uh, I, I get George can speak to that because um, uh, in many ways the book was um, uh, was uh, his kind of brainchild. I just wanted to add to what Alex said, which is the point about history um, and the way in which it was. Um, kind of uh, the relationship between politics and history. So, I mean, it all, we took, I mean, in talking about the end of the end of history, you know, we meant the end of the post-Cold War period, which had been characterized as the end of history. And therefore, the end of the end of history meant the end of that period. Um, but again, it was kind of, it reflected our interest in, um, and our our intellectual kind of um uh, educational background and outlook in Hegelian Marxism and the way in which it understood um, history as the you know the classical Hegelian idea that history is about the consciousness or the achievement of the consciousness of freedom and that this is embodied in kind of ideological struggles and so the end the end of history was that period had come to the end with the establishment of the technocratic consensus described by Alex. Um, and how that liberal centrist technocratic consensus kind of fragmented and crumbled under the blows of um, phenomena. I mean, the 2008 crisis, but politically speaking, uh, you know, Brexit and Trump, I think, were the kind of the twin, the twin kind of um, battering grams, I guess, against that those uh, liberal centrist structures. Uh, so the end of the end of history was the end of that 30 year period, roughly speaking, between the end of the Cold War and 2016. Um, it was the end of that. And though there was nothing new, perhaps there was certainly that the, you know, we saw something receding into the past. Yeah, just I, I won't talk too long about about the book, because as, um, as you mentioned, Caleb, we've, we've done, a, done an, an episode on that previously. But I think what we wanted to do with the book was or what 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 we agreed on at least was that the frameworks um that you tended to encounter that were trying to capture what was um new about this post 2016 moment they were all um insufficient and very often um not very not very interesting not very useful at all so really the that's what the book i think tries to do at its core is just present here a set of frameworks particularly <clears throat> around how to understand politics and history um you know it's a it's not a it's not a final word on these things um but it's definitely an attempt to as phil said i guess it, name the period that um follows the end of history which followed the cold war so you know cold war 20 and i i also advocated i would say for the tables and and the various kind of um periodizations in the book to be as, as clear as possible cold war 1945 to 1989 end of history 1989 to 2015 end of the end of history 2016 to question mark as it has in the book and yeah just to add to to what phil was saying it's a double it's a double negative it's the end of that kind of negative post-cold war period but is there what can you say about what's positive um about this period um what its defining features are well they're still they were emerging at the time we wrote the book and i think they're still um emerging now yeah, I think it's telling actually that, you know, because I think often not, you know, Fukuyama was misunderstood in many ways. I think as you alluded to, Caleb, um, often understood as not as predicting the fact that there would be no more events um, or that everywhere would become a liberal democracy almost immediately um, and that there wouldn't be any variation within liberal democratic regimes. In fact, that, you know, Fukuyama's prognosis entirely foresaw that. Um, in a different way, uh, our book, sometimes I think people have mischaracterized it or try or seen us as saying this is the return of history, right? That that somehow that there's now a systemic alternative to capitalism on the table. Um, that um, that effectively, you know, the masses are back on the stage of history, or you know, taking the reins, or something like that. And we're very much not saying that. You know, I think the the positive points to draw out in terms of you know things to be enthusiastic or optimistic about um, are tend to be more negative than they are positive in terms of you know it's very much the breakdown of the old order, opening up space for politics rather than the politics that are around today being particularly promising um, in their own right. Though of course, there you know there's various different moments here and there, um, little revolts and whatnot of various sorts, which can be seen promising, but as we know, they tend to disappear very quickly. Um, so I think that's, that's important to note. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, with politics in the past few years, there's there's so many different interpretations that I've read and that I've heard from from different people, whether or not, you know, I, I, I feel like there's, there's a decent amount of consensus that whatever was the neoliberal order has ended, whether or not the end of neoliberalism also means the end of liberalism and the turn to Mm. other things is a question. So I guess that's sort of my question. Uh, and, you know, whoever would like to can take this, you know, what, that do you, do you see that the end of the end of history as meaning that we're, we're, we're just moving on from neoliberalism to something new or is liberalism facing legitimate challenges and well, other things, other for maybe, you know, some forms of a liberal capitalism or, or democratic socialism or, or other challengers, do you see these as viable, obviously without necessarily asking you to predict the future. Yeah, I'm not sure that we, the three of us, all all completely agree on this. I think there's we've we've discussed it on quite a few episodes, and I think, I mean, it's it's not the most interesting answer to the question of whether neoliberalism is over to to say that it depends what you mean by neoliberalism, but there is certainly something that you can interestingly do to kind of work out what are the different economic or political aspects of that system how have they been um in crisis for a long time how have they been um dismissed or rejected and you know maybe this this process gives you some some question or some some pointers as to what what follows or what's what's likely to come next um and yeah and i mean it's it's obviously a perennial concern of the podcast what is what are the current uh, trends leading to both in western europe um america and, and more more widely I think to kind of to kind of be quite crude about it, because um, we have you know, I, and I'll obviously let my my co-hosts disagree. I think there is a there is a basic continuity, um, at least in in the member states of the European Union. This can be seen most most clearly that all of the changes in political economy that we're undoubtedly witnessing at this point in time don't change the fundamental fact that economic decisions still are encased from political contestation and this arguably is one of the kind of defining features of neoliberalism and and to that extent there is a process of of continuity as well as uh, one of change and i would probably emphasize that in in my response to what is you know a very difficult but important question that you that you posed yeah i mean i i don't think i wouldn't define neoliberalism um so broadly as to be simply the encasement you know or the, the encasement of politics from from economy and vice versa because uh firstly i mean i think that's a tendency of capitalism as a whole um the separation of economic and political power uh and also and kind of more importantly in in relation to today i think it's important it's possible it's plausible and it's very easy to imagine a post neoliberal regime and it's telling that we use kind of such clunky terms as post neoliberal because there's you know there's nothing positive there and there's no name for it but you know we can imagine a post neoliberal regime in which politi- in which uh, the economy also remains somehow protected did or is not subject to mass intervention, right? Um, in a, in a very de- democratic sense, but is nonetheless no longer neoliberal because it abandons all the key features or mo- many of the key features that um, that have characterized the neoliberal period: the lowering of trade barriers, uh, deregulation, um, you know, the independent setting of interest rates, independent central banks, you know, what have you. Um, so the talk, talk today about um, you know setting price caps, for example, would have been a complete no no. And I, so I think you know whatever ultimately wherever you stand on whether neoliberalism is over, is ending, to what degree it's ending, or whether it's at an intellectual or a political or economic level or so or, you know social one um i think i think we can um i think what's clear is that the the breakdown is very much there you know that it's that it's being undermined and, but that there's no real agent that has been able to overturn it at the moment and i think so that's why this it's this weird period of stasis and that it's such a hybrid situation that if you were to ask anyone looking at today from the perspective of the 1980s, if such a thing were possible, they would not re- recognize the p- political economy of advanced nations today as neoliberal, according to the terms that they knew it in the 80s, or early 90s. So I think that, you know, it, it's undoubted that there's been a significant amount of, of change. Um, the, 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 the follow-on question about liberalism, um, I think is a really interesting one, and in some ways is a, is a more difficult one because um, liberalism is just such a more fundamental ideological conception than 
the its specific neoliberal iteration. Um, I, I'm sure Phil has plenty to say on this. I just wanted to, I, I would, ju- would just say that liberalism has been very much undermined from within. So basic liberal values, which in theory are shared across the liberal part of the spectrum, whether it's right liberals or left liberals, um, have been largely cast aside. And that's, if you think of various forms of individual liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of association, um, are, are all, um, I, not just being contested from outside, but very much undermined from within. And that's been an ongoing process over um, over the past 40 years, particularly. But I mean, one could argue, um, you know, even ever since 1913. Um, A question that I want to ask, like you, you just used the example of what's going on in the UK. Um, I, I'm based in the, in the United States. Uh, Alex, you're based in Brazil. Uh, and so that's something that I that I really appreciate about BungaCast is the fact that you spend so much time focusing on politics, uh, political issues in different countries. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you guys can just give a little bit of a, uh, some, some perspective on the importance of doing this kind of comparative politics, comparative comparing different political events and using that as a way to inform how we might be thinking about these sort of bigger political and philosophical transformations that are are ongoing. So the the one, I mean, the basic inspiration for the, I mean, the basic thesis with which we started the pod, and one of the inspirations for it was the idea that the end of history regime was crumbling, and that was the uh, the post Cold War regime that Francis Fukuyama had outlined. And we felt that that kind of era of liberal technocracy was coming to an end. Now, Francis Fukuyama, he made his case that it was a global phenomenon. So the phenomenon of the end of history wasn't something which was restricted to the West. And so um, by the same token that we expected, if we were right, we expected to see similar kinds of trends and phenomena in different contexts throughout the world. And so that was why it was important to us um, that we tried to do as much as possible was to try and um, compare and contrast different national contexts, to look at the international context and to think about um, how these processes of the end of the end of history, how they happened in different places and different um, in different countries. So that was I mean, that was one of the main motivations for the comparative aspect of the pod. Obviously, um, living in Brazil provides a different perspective, um, and that necess- and and I think you know Brazil is interesting insofar as it provides perhaps what could be called a sort of median global experience, just because of its place in the world economy, um, its kind of level of income, and so on. And I think perhaps most importantly, um, the I think the way that things look from the most advanced countries gives a misleading picture about the world. And that's not to say that what happens there isn't important. In fact, it is more important just because of the way that it that what happens in countries like the US or Britain or France and, and increasingly China, obviously, and Japan um, set the tone for a lot of the rest of the world simply by their power and, and their advanced nature. But at the same time, you know, if, to get a picture of how capitalism works uh it's in the periphery or the semi-periphery in countries like brazil and you know nigeria or you know indonesia um turkey and so on where you get a, a kind of sometimes a picture of um one a still existing desire for um modernization where which has now been um Kind of, which is kind of not very much discussed, I think, in in um, the most advanced countries, um, and a kind of sense of, I guess, the capitalism as a as a kind of developmental process. Whereas, if you're at the forefront of that, if you're in 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 the kind of early developing countries, you that's something which has kind of been long forgotten because it's you know it's it's ancient history. Um, so I think that's important, and just kind of in in, in terms of what we try to do on the podcast, we. Yeah, we do try to push ourselves to keep abreast of what's going on and not fall into a kind of lefty trap, which I think um, it often happens to, you know, it, it, or it's a temptation. When there's something exciting happening, you know, there's like, oh, there's big protests and they look kind of left wing and they're happening in whatever, Moldova or wherever, that you go and enthusiastically cover that 
as a kind of replacement for your own politics or your own lack of politics at home. And we, right from the start, never wanted to do that, never wanted to engage in what used to be called revolutionary tourism. Um, I don't know what it would be called today. But to look at, to go and do an episode on Nigeria, for example, when actually it, it doesn't seem on face value that exciting or at any rate isn't um, something where there's an obvious side to get behind because I think that ends up kind of clouding too much of, of one's picture, you know. Um, so, you know, we've done episodes to take the example again. I mean, it, this was already a long time ago. I'm, I can find fresher examples. But anyway, to stick with Nigeria, you know, we talked a lot about anti-corruption politics as a form of anti-politics, um, the way that people's anger, disgruntlement, frustration with the intractability of politics, um, the inability to guarantee uh, higher living standards attaches on to corruption, to political corruption uh, in kind of post-ideological times because we lack the language to really express and give a vision to our frustration our angers and our hopes, uh, it gets very much targeted at the political class as corrupt, which we have to get rid of, but without any idea of what to replace it. And so Nigeria, to continue the example, provided an interesting case to to look at that because the, the kind of election there, I remember when we discussed it back in 2019, if I recall correctly, um, was very much on that pivot, right? And I, so I think... Um, constantly trying to go and look beyond without being drawn into this kind of attractive little like, hey, there's some cool lefty thing happening there. Let's get behind that. Um, I guess keeps us um, keep us a little bit more level and grounded. Uh, George or Alex, I don't either, or George or Philip, I don't either of you want to comment on that? No, just uh, just really briefly to add, I think learning about um, some of these these places that I was kind of uh, embarrassingly ill-informed about through some extremely knowledgeable, interesting uh, and engaging guests. I think it's actually been um, one of the, the best bits of doing the podcast is, um, you know, would I have picked up a book on Indonesian history at some point? Yes, probably. But the fact we, we you know, we're going to be recording on this you know that that gives the spur to kind of you know to to read it and you know to then discuss it. I think it's a great you know <laughs> everyone should uh, should have a podcast and read about all these uh, different nations of the, of the world and their political histories. Mentioning you know you, you briefly mentioned learnings from from the guests. You know I wanted to ask you all at the, at the risk of maybe picking favorites uh, if there there were any particular guests that you had on where you were just were very you know, sort of blown away by maybe what they had to say. And then even even beyond that, you know, who are the the other podcasters out there or other writers uh, that you feel are just doing a great job of capturing uh, political issues today? Uh, and it, it doesn't need to be necessarily directly related to the things that you talk about uh, on your podcast, but just, you know, what, what do you guys like reading? Phil, do you want to go ahead with this or should I? Otherwise, I'll go. Oh, George, you want to go? You go. So I th- I th- we have some um, some repeat uh, some repeat offender guests, some people we've invited on uh, a number of times um, because we just I think it's a combination of um, you know maybe we know some of these people in in real life and so have a good good rapport, but also always have something interesting and uh, engaging to say. So. I mean, I don't want to name names. I think Bill Clinton said you should never, um, never have a list of names because people always wonder why they're not on it. Um, so uh, <laughs> that, I hope that's not ducking the question, um, the question too much. But I think you know you can you can see the the publications. I think that the three of us um, do write for, and I think there's a lot of there's kind of an emerging. I guess network is probably a bit too strong to put it, but people I think who are who are kind of not necessarily on the left, but maybe at one point in time might have identified that way, now are critical of some of the things that the left's doing at this point in time. And so that kind of critical energy towards, you know, towards some of those traditions, I think is an interesting place to 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 start from um in in writing and also those people uh, tend to to go to the sorts of conferences that we we go to um and you know it's a great place to meet them and invite them on the podcast i mean i, I in the same way or similar way to bill clinton and lists i don't think you should start talking about being part of networks otherwise you end up on other people's lists and that's uh that's risky business 
this <laughs> um, is a new books network yeah. podcast it is so. a network but not all network yeah you know some some networks are shadowier yeah. than others uh, i would never want to end up on bill clinton's list too. no that's that is definitely true um yeah very much so no i think I, I, george is right we've um people who we knew um already prior to podcasting or who have become actual friends and and kind of intellectual friends as well as you know in real life friends over the course of this um people that we have on regularly i mean you could probably go through and look at who we've had on and it becomes um quite 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 clear i mean we have you know friends like alex gurovich or lee jones that on um anton yeager who we've had on plenty and who we actually think got to know through the podcast but who have become regular guests catherine Dew and amber lee frost and people like that and again obviously apologies to anyone that i'm missing out um but you know that's that's the nature of of uh, making lists suddenly off off the top of your head um but also people who we haven't we didn't know and who you know see that they have a new book out and suddenly it's like wow this is this is really impressive and it um changes and influences our thinking on it um i'm just going to take one example because it's the most recent one um i was asked to review um, a, a book by uh, Fritz Bartel recently for the American Affairs, um, and then obviously having you know done a close reading of the book, had to have him on the podcast, and that was a great experience um, to be able to kind of discuss what I had then reviewed and written, and, and have that sort of dialogue there. Um, and over the course of five years, it's it's I mean it's been genuinely great and enlivening, and um, has you know changed my life into at least intellectually for the better. Being to ha- able to have these exchanges with people and have these contacts with uh, thinkers who are really doing interesting things, providing new perspective on uh, the contemporary reality, or perhaps the, the past, or even the future, um, and to be able to draw upon those, and to then also continue discussions as well. And I think that's that's what's really nice. You know, you have someone on, you read their book, you discuss things with them, you have a, a, a you know, you you kind of on the same page. They like you, you like them. Suddenly, um, and this this sounds like the beginning of a of a kind of NAF Hollywood kind of romance that's not where i'm trying to go with this but the idea is that they, you can call them up again you know and then take that conversation further um and try to you know seal the deal no that's not what i'm trying to say that's not <laughs> but you know um there's definitely there's definitely a, a kind of intellectual uh, ferment i should give a mention as well actually to the series that we've done where uh we've drawn on a much wider range of guests you know in a single episode or over a series of episodes um and try to so i mean something which people always tell us that they were you know huge fans of and it, it was um it's always very nice to hear it kind of catch caught us by surprise but that was our a series which we did on the californian ideology uh george and i went out to uh, to California, invited by the University of College Irvine and Catherine Liu there to record some seminars uh, with her students. They were discussing the idea and the ideology of wellness. And we were able to develop on that, on those recordings um, into, into a series on, you know, the Californian ideology, this kind of merger of uh, neoliberal rationality and, uh, and kind of hippie ethics, um, which we see everywhere around us. And I think that's why people kind of took to that series and we did a recent one on on generations which we're soon going to release to the general public um it's been out for patrons for um for a good couple of months now um where we were able to construct try to construct a narrative around the sociology of generations um, but also tying very much into the contemporary debates around the 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 kind of uh, attempts to sort of stimulate a a a generational war or people's self-conception as uh, pertaining to a generation perhaps millennials who are apart from boomers and look at the exact um, dividing lines, you know, so how the way that millennials conceive themselves as different from boomers is very different to the way that boomers conceived of themselves as different from their parents' generation. So today, um, economic and distributional questions are much more central. Everybody knows these questions around housing and education, um, which is very different to what how the boomers react to their parents, which was much more on um, the pivot or the axis of values. And anyway, so being able to explore that in much longer form and being able to actually bring writing into podcasting, which is which is kind of different, right? To write out a script, to write out a narrative and fill in the blanks with um, contributions from guests um, is a pretty different experience. And, you know, we don't come, none of us come from a background of, you know, broadcasting or, or production, um, but kind of learning on the go and, and trying to put that together is, has been a very productive experience for us and hopefully for, for listeners as well to present these ideas in a, in a different format. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, as a longtime listener, one of the things that I appreciate about the podcast is I do feel like 
you know, you guys are very much willing to, you know, put your ideas out there. Uh, and, you know, over the, the period or, or over a course of time, you know, you'll that kind of uh, themes will, will emerge, ideals will, will develop. Um, and in an interesting way where I feel like there's, uh, you know, uh, as you sort of mentioned before, that sort of starting in a kind of a, a maybe a dirtbag left world, but then branching out into other things. And, you know, I, I, picking up just on, on a couple of things that you guys mentioned, George in particular, uh, about maybe this this idea of, of post-left or, or you know, what that means, or, or, or like, let, let's say uh, left, but with an adjective in front of it. Alex, you also mentioned that you wrote a, a review of, of Fritz Bartel's recent book, Triumph of Broken Promises, uh, for American Affairs, which I think more or less is conservative, would, would be considered conservative magazine, conservative journal. I'm just wondering, you know, what? how do you guys sort of see working uh, in different areas where maybe not necessarily just in, in one ideological framework, but but trying to pick on different intellectual strands, uh, maybe a little bit on the right, on the left mostly, but in different areas too? Well, I think the, well, uh, yeah, um, sorry, we, we do that quite a lot <laughs> because three three people being interviewed is quite tricky. Yeah, I have what I hope is a good answer to this, but we, we will see if that is the case. I mean, I think it's 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 definitely very useful that and important for the podcast that the three of us were 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 friends before doing the podcast and weren't drawn together by a specific kind of political project um because any political project that kind of started in sort of 2017 i think it's you know a lot of those those projects kind of uh, ended in in varying degrees of flames um, more or less quickly and so i think that that the fact that we don't feel like we have to agree on anything i think is on everything <laughs> sorry a bit of a freudian slip there um we we don't have to agree on absolutely everything means that we can can we don't you know we can also bring in guests who we don't agree with and i think some of the most interesting episodes for me have been ones where um i haven't agreed with the guest or and have had to kind of you, you know try and not trip them up but like have a have a what's hopefully an honest intellectual discussion um and as some of the things around um i think particularly uh, benjamin bratton's interview around um his book there's uh, andreas malm came on and um, gave what I think was a um, a very good exposition of um, what he calls eco-Leninism, which is not something I would, you know, have, have said at the start. That's something I agree with uh, necessarily. We had some some Scottish socialists making an extremely eloquent case for um, Scottish independence, and so I think it's you know it. I think it it makes it more interesting, basically, um, for us just to put it in a selfish, self-interested way that we you know we don't have to resolve everything and close it all up. We don't have to kind of um, you know, we can just kind of be hanging out to a certain extent sometimes and and thinking things through without feeling like, right, we need to finish every episode all on the same page or we're not going to be able to talk to each other um, again. And obviously the guests throw in some things which, you know, might be from, we've had Julius, um, who's the editor of American Affairs on, um, for example, um, you, you know, alluded to that uh, publication, Caleb. And, you, you know, I think some people would criticize us for that but i think we're we're kind of interested in developing our ideas and as, as long as we keep to that um to that that project it's you know it means we can bring in things which um other podcasts might be a bit kind of reluctant to to kind of explore some of those ideas yeah so we were always we were always we always tried to be um as open-minded as possible with respect to some of these um developments but also i think again it was it was, I think, um, the fact that there is such intellectual ferment um, on the right in particular, I think, in some ways, I think the left is more um, stale and uh, repetitive in terms of the tropes that it keeps on recapitulating. Um, but we, I mean, as part of that scrambling of the inherited political positions from the end of history and the breakdown of um, the conventional kind of party political alignments, the conventional intellectual um, orthodoxies, all of those things that it seemed it seemed to me and um, and I'm sure also to Alex and to George, it seemed to that it was incumbent on us 
to be ecumenical and to be willing to have conversations with people who um, were at least serious about their ideas, who attempted to be rigorous and who attempted to try and capture what was going on in an honest way. And so that was also, I mean, that was also why we were so keen to engage with different intellectual currents that went beyond the um, so-called, you know, or traditional left. Maybe this is a, this is a, an un, an unfair uh, remark, uh, but just just going based off of the accents. But I always I feel to a certain extent like your uh, podcast is a little bit reminds me a little bit of like an Adam Curtis uh, documentary, um, just that sort of uh, the, you know century of the self that that kind of uh, examining politics uh, in this way where you know I, I I don't really know what politically Adam Curtis is. He's probably leftist. But I've heard him describe himself also as a conservative. But I'm sure he's uh, just you know playing around with words there when he says something like that. Yeah, the question of Adam Curtis's politics is always an interesting one, and I think I'm pretty sure I've heard him describe himself as um, being libertarian adjacent or libertarian sympathizing as well um, as being on the left. So you know, it's, I mean, that's an interesting question, and I think I mean I would you know I'm uh, I'm. Uh, I think it's flattering to us, I guess, to be compared to Adam Curtis, um, specifically the and the way in which he's able to trace the logic of certain kinds of ideas and the inadvertent consequences of certain sets of belief systems and political outlooks that end up producing things, you know, against their own intention. You remember one of his kind of, you know, one of the points he makes was always about how the um, the kind of the libertarian libertarian left or the um or with that kind of anarchic energy um and that original vision for the internet that liberty original kind of left libertarian vision for the internet became the powerhouse of the new kind of techno giants of silicon valley and so the point being that what started on the left became a pro you know kind of a quintessentially capitalist project of um massive corporate power and control so you know, if that is if that's a signature of Adam Curtis, um, then I hope that's that at least is something that we also capture in the discussions that we have with guests and amongst ourselves about how certain kinds of ideas and certain kinds of policies and politics have consequences that go beyond um, where they begin on the political spectrum and beyond the intention of their founders and originators. Yeah. And uh, hopefully there'll be an Afa Bunga Bunga documentary <laughs> series uh, produced in the future. Uh, that, that, that would be interesting. Well, we would love to do that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not, not about us. That would be terrible and uninteresting. Right, but, right, uh... right. Well, well <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but something I, you know, taking, I, I think that, that the, the political approach and discussion that you guys take, you know, I, I just think our, our listeners would find it very interesting because I think, it's a good model for how I at least think, you know, I, I, the, some more of the, uh, let's say, um, you know, hardline uh, sort of dirtbag left podcasts. Really, I just can't listen to them uh, more really because they were, uh, I, I, I don't know, so, something about, about them just isn't that interesting to me uh, as, I, as I used to find them. Uh, though I, I think, you know, your, your show has, has evolved uh, in, in a very nice way. Uh, well, Alex, George, and Philip, thank you so much for being guests on the New Books Network. It was great talking to you all. And I'm sure our listeners will find what you said very interesting. Uh, do you guys want to give a little bit? I, I, I know, uh, wh- where can listeners find you? What's sort of the best way, uh, best place they want to either just subscribe or get in touch or interested in the show? Yeah, so um, we're at BungaCast pretty much everywhere. Uh, if you want to email us, you can email us at info at BungaCast.com. And of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, not TikTok, though. Um, you won't find us there. Um, not yet, anyway. Um, and um, of course, if you just search BungaCast anywhere um, where you get your podcast, you'll find us there, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. And uh, also, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um there's little video content on there, but we, we occasionally do do some videos, so that's where you can find us. And half of our content is for patrons only at uh, patreon.com slash bungacast. Uh, we kind of put out two original episodes a month, so it's not just kind of uh, scraps that we feed the patrons, but it's uh, kind of its own programming in its own right. 
um, where we do some kind of deeper analysis of contemporary contemporary affairs, as well as have really lively and engaging discussions with uh, our listeners responding to comments, uh, responding to their engagements with ours and and often you know them them kind of kicking our asses and us having to defend ourselves <laughs> which um, which is good keeps us on our toes and that so that's what it's all about um, so yeah it's at BungaCast everywhere if you want to search for us and obviously you know if people haven't read our book yet the end of the end of history um, it's still pretty relevant um, and hope and looks like it'll continue to be at least for a couple of years so um, yeah that's that's something maybe to check out if you're interested oh and I should also uh, mention too that that uh, BungaCast also has a has a theme song. It's a, it's a nice little tune. Uh, before the interview, it was mentioned that the the composer has an album coming out. If you guys want to want to plug that, <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll um I'll plug this. It's my mate uh, Johnny Johnny Mundy M U N D E Y, um and yeah, so his his band Cone uh, K O N E have a, an album coming out, and um yeah, give give the theme tune a listen. I mean, I have to say, it replaced one that um, Alex had done. Um, which actually was was already very good quality. So I think um, hopefully listeners are, are spoiled by the the musical standards of the um, <laughs> of the podcast. Um, but yeah, go and check Johnny's band out. Got to put that plug in there. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, have a have a great evening. Uh, I guess afternoon for you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Thanks, Caleb. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Uh-huh.